Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome back to Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Isabel. Welcome, Isabel. Hi. I'm really happy to have you on. I'm happy that we've connected. We've already had a little cute chat before we started recording while I was trying to get this tech stuff all sorted and organized, but welcome. Uh, Do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah. So my name is Isabel Kennedy and I am a 19-year-old survivor of rape, sexual assault, and domestic violence. And my former partner abused me when I was 16 years old. So I lived my life in fear for so long, using alcohol to cope, drinking pints of vodka every night to try to forget what he put me through. And I actually ended up in plenty of residential treatment centers to cope with this trauma, which I was sexually assaulted yet again at one of those treatment centers, which was really hard to deal with and led to a relapse. And it took years of treatment, much self-discovery to finally realize that I'm a survivor, not a victim in both these incidents that occurred. Absolutely. And I think especially when we've got things like addiction and abusive substances, it is so heavily stigmatized in the way that we see that rather than seeing it as a coping mechanism, rather than seeing it as as an illness, which is what it is, mm-hmm. um, some people have the tendency to to fall to victim blame, which is just absolutely horrific. But yeah. I'm so glad that you're you're okay now and that you're here and that you're in recovery and that we can have this discussion because it's something that really does need to be spoken about openly. As many people who are listening to this right now, I'm sure would have had their own stints with alcohol abuse, myself included, um, with utilizing other drugs and other substances potentially, even with overusing of food, um, which I've spoken about with a number of people on this podcast and we spoke about briefly before we started. So, you know, I think if anybody is going through anything like addiction right now, then um, we're going to put some resources in the show notes for this episode. And just know that as well, along with any sexual assault or domestic abuse or trauma-related incidents or occurrences or patterns of behavior that happen to you, 
there's no shame here and we're here to work through it together. And I know want you to know that this is a guilt-free and safe space that we can talk about this in. Um, and yeah, please, if you are struggling with it or if you're not sure that you're struggling with it, then please reach out to somebody as well. So thank you for bringing it up, Isabel. Of course. But you said that you were 16 when this started for you or when the incident or incidents occurred. Would you mind kind of taking us back to where you were in your life when this began? Yeah. So first I kind of want to put like a trigger warning or just like an advisory on this part of the story as it could get graphic. And I want to advise like the discretion of all listeners. So I first met my abuser in February, 2020, right before the COVID pandemic. And how we kind of met was we were at a party together and he helped me escort a drunk friend of mine home. And right off the bat, it was love bombing with him. So, which is, that's kind of like intense displays of affection early on in the relationship. And how he kind of showed that was he offered to buy me gifts within like 10 minutes of knowing me. And he offered like, or he expressed how close he wanted to get with me. So this was kind of like a 16 year old me's dream come true. I didn't know how lethal it was at the time. We ended up exchanging information and beginning to chat all of the quarantine um, of the pandemic And I trusted him with everything. I told him about the struggles I had about being in such close proximity to my family all the time. I told him about struggles with another sexual assault I had faced the summer prior. He listened to every word of it, which like made me feel really safe at first. But little did I know this would all be information he would later use against me. We didn't have any romantic or sexual contact while talking over the quarantine. And it wasn't until mid-June 2020 when in America, the... um, the quarantine had been lifted um, and we were able to go outside again. And like, it was very strict with some rules and stuff like that, but um, we were able essentially just to like little by little go out. So that was where I first met up with him really alone. I was staying the night at a friend's house and I was very drunk and high from weed. We were just having a sleepover. We were able to see each other for the first time in a while. So it was all, we kind of found ourselves getting carried away. He caught wind of this through Snapchats I was sending him and asked me to meet up in the middle of the night. Um, I agreed, which is something I wouldn't do sober since I barely knew him. I probably would have wanted to take it slow. Um, And we went to a local park in my hometown. And I remember he was supposed to show up at like 12 a.m., but he didn't show up until around 1. And in that period of time waiting for him, I also continued to drink more. And then he showed up at like 1 a.m. with a soup thermos full of whiskey, which was pretty weird. Um, He didn't drink any of this. Um, I now believe that it could have been drugged, but I have no way of telling for sure. I never got a rape kit done. I didn't process it or anything. And we began kissing after a while of me drinking and him just kind of sitting there talking to me. I forgot how that was initiated. Everything seems really fuzzy kind of looking back at it. But what I do remember is him pulling out a condom and throwing himself on top of me. And it's taken kind of so much to say that without getting emotional. I feel like when I first kind of started talking about it in therapy and to my parents and my friends who all know the story, I was an emotional wreck when I first started kind of opening up about that. It's taken so much strength and just kind of saying that as a fact rather than something with a very overwhelming emotional response. 
And was it the emotional response was about just the fact that the condom or what was the emotional response do you feel? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, so many of us have these visceral triggers and a condom has a very specific sound. And I wonder if it's a if it's a sensory thing or if it's what you know is coming or both. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, I didn't really know what was coming. Like I was so drunk. I was confused. He threw himself on top of me. And in that moment, I froze. I didn't know what was happening. I remember telling him to stop, but he wouldn't stop. And the next morning I woke up, everything was completely fuzzy. It took a while of like therapy and just kind of having flashbacks to like fully remember what happened. And I woke up the very next morning, or it was still the same morning, I guess, because this happened at like one or two. And I woke up around five and he was still next to me. So we said our goodbyes that morning and I went back to my friend's house because we had separated that night. She went to go see her boyfriend of a very long time. And when I got back to her house, she pointed out I had horrible bruises and hickeys all over my neck that I had no idea how they got there. And I didn't want to believe at the time that someone I knew and thought I trusted could hurt me in this way. And I didn't even process um, what happened was rape until months after going no contact with him. Yeah. Wow. And when you say bruises and hickeys, like I think we all have that vision of what a hickey looks like as well, but do you feel in the moments you were being, like bitten or strangled as well? Or or do you feel like these were just very, not just as in to minimize that by the way, but, but these are very intensive hickeys that have, that have left multiple bruises on your neck. See, I don't remember. I don't remember if I was choked. I don't remember if they were like intense hickeys that left bruises because I blacked out after a certain point. I don't know what he did to me after I blacked out. I just remember telling him to stop and him not stopping. And then after a while, I just completely passed out and woke up a few hours later. Yeah. And I think it's worth just reiterating right now that, you know, whether you were drugged or not, you know, and I think it it, it does bear the brunt of saying, because we often feel so, so much shame around being spiked and we overemphasize and over discuss that sometimes as a way to kind of make ourselves I I don't want to say like to make ourselves maybe more believable because we fear that by saying that, that we're not going to be believed on the instance. But regardless, you've got somebody that it's not drinking, that's brought alcohol. You've already been drinking and smoking weed, you know, like you're being plied with alcohol right now. And I believe that that possibly shows intent as well. And Mm -hmm. regardless, you weren't consenting like, we have this, you know, horrible shitty mindset that is, you know, it's a random down a dark alley, not this guy that's been love bombing you. And that's really kind that you have a potential affinity to. You didn't Mm. want that. And you weren't able to consent in that moment. So the law in Australia, I believe defines being drunk as being able to show that you're drunk. So like in the States, it would be, you know, how they do those, um, those side, um, side of what are they called the assessments the sobriety assessments yes well they make you like walk in a line kind of thing if you show in any way that you're drunk or a reasonable person would believe that you were then you cannot consent and you could not do that because you were so 
intoxicated or drugged and or both that you could not provide that consent. So that is sexual assault under the law in every circumstance. And I don't want anybody listening to this to think anything else. Yeah. And I have videos. I showed these to the police too. I'm going to get into that later of me in that state that night, just completely obliterated, completely intoxicated. And sometimes I watch those videos because I kept everything in like a little evidence folder that I ended up showing the police who ended up showing the district attorney. And that's one of them. And like, it was just a video of me being drunk, but it showed that the timestamp on the date of which I said it was, and that I was physically incapable of consenting. Absolutely. And that's a very strong piece of evidence as well. It's a very strong circumstantial piece of evidence that you are not lying, that you are telling Mm -hmm. the truth. And that puts you and the story that you've told in alignment with that. Mm -hmm. So kind of like in the back of my mind, I was always very uncomfortable with this relationship with him because after he raped me the very next day, I texted him after I saw the hickeys and the bruises. And I was like, did we have sex last night? And he said he didn't know and no further discussion. He was not willing to talk about it, which was definitely a red flag, but I didn't want to believe anything at the time. I didn't want to believe this person who I had been talking to, who made me feel some type of way, would hurt me. And him saying I didn't know as well, were you at the time aware that he wasn't drinking? hmm Right. So he should have no reason to not recollect what happened. Yes. Right. So for a few weeks after the rape, I tried to stay sober around him. I was afraid, but I couldn't really place my finger on why. But eventually I began to drink around him and he used that as a way to have sex with me because I remember telling him like, I don't want to do this sober, which I think was a red flag as well. And another red flag was he was older than me at the time. Um, I was uncomfortable with our age difference. I was still a minor at this point. He wasn't. So I voiced this concern to him and he convinced me it was all legal. I knew in the back of my mind something wasn't right, but I still didn't want to believe he could cause any physical or emotional harm to me. How old was he? Do you mind me asking? So he was 18. I was 16, which doesn't seem like a huge age difference, but in the States or in my state specifically of New York, um, the age of consent is 17. So he knew that there was still a power imbalance. And I feel like at the time, like I told him, I was like, hey, like I'm a little uncomfortable. You're older than me. This is not the age of consent because I am personally, and I have been for a while, like very into law and like studying the law. I want to be a lawyer. I want to prosecute sex crimes and something one day. Um, But he was like, oh, Romeo and Juliet laws were fine, which is basically a law that states it's some weird thing. I'm not super sure on the specifics of it, but it's like if you're in a relationship with someone, then the illegal age difference is fine. But with us, the way it worked, I'm pretty sure the way this law works, um, don't quote me on this, But I'm pretty sure the way it works is that if you're in that relationship before one of the parties reaches the age of consent or the age of where he can't, I don't know, 
Sorry. <laughs> that's um, all right. We can look it up. But I think the other thing is as well, like that's just like straight from the sex offenders playbook, like yeah. the statement, like, and, and people will refer to things like that, that believe that these relationships are relationships. It's not a relationship. It's an abuse dynamic. Um, and, you know, like maybe there are circumstances where a 16 year old and an 18 year old can have a loving and healthy and flourishing relationship. You know, in Australia, in the, my state of Victoria, the age of consent is 16. And I remember there was a man that I was dating who was a former AFL footballer, which is like an NFL footballer where you are very famous. And he would like come and watch me train because I used to be a pole vaulter. And he would come to my training. He would pick me up. He would come see me at my friend's house after he'd played a game of AFL. So he's in his 20s. I'm 17, 16. But legally, because I was over 16, he was doing nothing wrong. But what you're saying is that there is a legal definition that is you were not at the age of consent, which means that he has committed a crime regardless of the sexual assault. That's statutory rape anyway. So there's there's different legal precedents here. But the reason I I almost giggle because it's just like, where, where are they reading the same book? Because they will constantly make these things and go, you know, in other countries you know, uh, women can get married at the age of 13, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, yeah, as slaves, you know, and it happens in different states and stuff around Australia and America too. Like that's not a good thing. That's not illegal. Like they they might be doing it within the law, but that's still trash. So just the, even the Romeo and Juliet of it all is setting it up to be like a very, like Romeo and Juliet, the story is an mm-hmm. abuse dynamic. It is two people that fall head over heels, you know, in inverted commas, and then they kill themselves. Like this is a a very dramatic reference to make, including the age. So, yeah, it's just, yeah, I just hear so much. I saw a TV show once, I forget which show, but the quote was, a lot of statutory rapists use Shakespeare as a character witness. And I think that is... I've got full body chills. That is a, that is like a, um, the most apt, succinct statement I've heard like in a long time. Mm-hmm. Full body chills, but that is so fucking true. So kind of like after I voiced this concern with him about the age difference, he convinced me it was all legal. Things started beco- to become clearer after he left for college, and he began responding to my messages less and less. I was still in high school at this point. Part of me felt like a sense of relief, but the other part of me was angry because I became trauma-bonded to him, which is, in a sense, a bond the abuse feels toward their abuser. So I eventually found out he was cheating on me when he was in college which wasn't a surprise. So kind of the way our relationship went, he never like officially called me his girlfriend or anything like that, but it was established that it was an exclusive relationship. And I found out he was cheating on me when he got to college. I confronted him on this and he was super angry without the mention of rape or anything like that. I had never confronted him on it before. He kept on threatening to sue me for slander and defamation, which he never did, even after I spoke out about this incident. If I ever spoke out about anything he did to me, like he's in his messages, I have them deleted now, but he would say something like, you so much as look at me in the wrong way. I get a restraining order. You talk about me and I hear about it. I sue you for slander. It was wild. That is such... 
an abuse tactic. Like, and it just reminds me right now to give, you know, to bring this into current, you know, vernacular that maybe people can put themselves in. Women are consistently threatened and subjugated via the systems that are in place in the law or threats thereof, because we've seen different women go through this. And this is exactly what Andrew and Tristan Tate are doing right now with the people who are speaking out against what they've done. So they're going, you know, we're going to sue you for $300 million for slander because you said or alleged that I did a crime. And it's just like, that's not the way that the law works, bud. Like, you know, if, if it's true, and I'm not saying it is just my opinion that that's for legal reasons, I have to say, (laughs) but it, it is, you know, you see this common theme with people who are inherently abusive and it is you do not speak out about me. There are threats. And like you said, there's that love bombing aspect and that coercive control that has made you almost dependent upon this person's validation um, and then they go away and then now they're not there anymore. It is a horrible dynamic. But Mm -hmm. this is an incredibly insidious behaviour for somebody who is young themselves to be doing to somebody in high school that doesn't maybe inherently know the law, you dare speak badly about me, I'm going to sue you for slander. That is such an insidious statement to make to a child. Like, this is ridiculous. What an idiot. I was scared. I was so scared. So I continued to remain in contact with him. I was like, if I step out of line, he's going to do something to me and I'm applying for colleges. I just insanity. Did you feel like you needed to like placate him as well? Like were you trying to maintain that kind of contact to try and, yeah, maybe make sure that nothing did happen to you? Yeah, totally. Continued to remain in contact and he blamed me for things such as his grades going down and even a suicide attempt. And he used all the information I had trusted him with over quarantine to lash out at me and make me feel like I was the bad person who felt all this guilt and shame. That is so dangerous. And I'm sorry to keep interjecting, but there's just so much in what you're saying. And I want to address some of them. And I think that one of them that we often overlook is this threats to suicide. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've heard people make this statement and it's a very good analogy because it really highlights the danger when somebody is threatening suicide. So if somebody is threatening suicide for attention, okay, so whether that they do want to end their lives or not. It's not for us to decide that. But the line between homicide and suicide is very thin. When you no longer value your life anymore, you very rarely value the lives of the other people around you. And the line between the danger to themselves and the danger to you is very thin there. That's where we're really getting into danger territory for your personal safety, whether this guy's there or not, in your current area at any given time. Like That's got nothing to do with it. But the threat of suicide is such a powerful tool that abusers use. And it is a way to control you. All of this stuff is leading you back into this um, cycle of power and control. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want you to kill yourself. And also maybe potentially not willingly or understanding at that time that this person, once they've made that threat to harm themselves, has potentially subconsciously made a threat to hurt you because that line between those two things is so thin. So days after he raped me, I began drinking and smoking every night, every night for years. And I began to spend my time alone with pints of vodka that I'd go to the liquor store and buy and one of those weed pens. 
So sometimes when I was drunk, while I was still in this relationship with him, I would work up the courage to try to leave him and he wouldn't let me. I attempted to leave him four times until he started to distance himself as I became angrier with him and calling him out for more of his shit. So even after we went no contact, though, I still kept drinking, which resulted for me in outbursts that I could not explain until recently. I was very dramatic drunk, very like a harm to myself, very problematic. Um, But I still kept drinking. And recently I was diagnosed with bipolar one, borderline personality disorder, as well as PTSD. So I've actually found that alcohol induces my mania. And it looks different for a lot of people with bipolar. Sometimes that can be weed. Sometimes it can be alcohol. Sometimes it can be completely something else. But for me, the start of my manic episodes, my psychiatrist explained this to me, can very easily start with alcohol. And um, yeah, so when I become drunk, that's kind of like the start of a manic episode for me, which ultimately results in catastrophe. And it wasn't until very recently I decided to kind of turn my life around and get sober. And I feel like it's very good um, for me just that I'm becoming sober at such a young age because I still have the rest of my life ahead of me and I can make positive change instead of getting caught up with in the cycle of addiction. But I know that it's never too late to turn anything around for anyone, no matter what age you are. And you can live a productive and healthy life if you've had addiction in the past. And people with addiction are some of the strongest people that I've ever met. Um, So I am... I don't want to say I'm, well, I'm proud to admit that I'm an alcoholic now. And I feel like there was so much shame and stigma with that for me saying I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink. I get crazy when I drink. But now I feel like I can kind of openly and confidently admit that. And it just feels like a weight lifted off my shoulders. So I have been through, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I'm so proud of you to hear that. Like that's- It's such an amazing thing to hear such a young person speak so openly and so truly about that. And I just wanted to make it as well, like that clarity, like, you know, you do have the exacerbation of your diagnosed mental health conditions when you do drink, but you've also got the comorbidity of the dependency on it. And some people that are maybe struggling with alcohol use might just be frequently using it and not having, you know, impacts to their mental health. It doesn't mean that it's not affecting them. Um, So if you are somebody that is downing a pint of vodka every night, but you're still being able to function and get up and go to work and you're not having those episodes, I'd still encourage you to go and maybe Google a few different things. There are some little quick uh, checklists that you can do to say, am I an alcoholic? Um, There's a lot of different ways that you can check. And it's not like you just said as well, the stigma doesn't need to be there. You know, you don't have to feel horrible about being an alcoholic and you don't have to feel horrible about being somebody who overuses and abuses drugs. I think it's something that we actively need to dismantle because we've got such, especially in Australia, such a drinking culture, you know, and it's, it's celebrated. It's funny. It's wonderful. You know, everyone's like, Oh, I'll go, you know, meet you down the thing for a pint. But it's like, if that's every night and you're having 12 beers every night or you're having a pint of vodka, you know, 
we're looking at something that could potentially be a coping mechanism or something that you're trying to escape from and something that is problematic. And that doesn't just have to be there if you act out or if it affects your other mental health disorders, if you, if you have that. I just wanted to make that people know as well that it still would have been a problem for you had you not already had the exacerbating factors of your mental health conditions. And that's, you know, I think people often only seek help in these moments when there is huge problems occurring, but there could be a pattern of behavior that's continuing that's about to come up, you know, that's about to blow up that we could, you know, get right ahead of and in front of. It wasn't until two years later where I reported this rape and domestic violence to the police. I had evidence of text messages to him where he admitted getting with me as a minor, images of the bruising and harm he had caused to my neck, and the videos of me very out of my mind that night, very intoxicated. The police that I talked to and the detective that led my investigation was super nice and handled the case very well. And I know that's not the case for a lot of survivors of sexual assault. I was very fortunate to have that experience. Uh, The detective investigating made sure I felt comfortable in the room while talking to him and allowed me to go at my own pace. The interview took probably a little over two hours. Um, It wasn't rushed. He was able to let me kind of get all my thoughts out there. He's like, Hey, I just want to let you know, we are recording, but you know, like just, I want you to feel safe. So that was really, I feel like that was very, very helpful in this journey. But despite the evidence I had provided, it wasn't enough. Uh, he, my abuser was scheduled for a voluntary surrender with to turn himself into the police And the morning of, I got a call from the police that informed me that the district attorney decided not to take the case due to lack of evidence and the length of time that I didn't report. What does that mean, though? Like, so the police say that we've got enough evidence. Initially, the DA has said, okay, we're going to do a voluntary surrender. We're going to get more information. And then they've come back and said, actually, like every fucking victim blaming stereotype that's ever come across anybody's, you know, lips, it is you took too long and there's not enough evidence, but you've got circumstantial evidence that is very clear. You've got uh, physical evidence for pictures of your physical evidence. Mm -hmm. You've got corroborative statements, obviously, from your friend that says exactly what that happened that night. You've got videos that prove it and he's admitted to it. He wouldn't admit to it. That's the thing. He lawyered up, didn't say a word to anyone. And I think that was a smart move on his part because in the other case that I'm about to get into at my treatment center, he had some loose lips. Yeah. But um, But, just to go back, like, but he did admit that he was in a quote unquote relationship with you as a minor. I don't ever know if he admitted that. Um, he admitted that to me, uh, while we were together, Yeah, but he, I think he was very smart about the way he played it. Him and his family were very, very smart and, um, they kind of knew how to handle this situation because I had been talking about it for quite some time after I publicly shared on my Instagram story, like 
what I was going to do. And I don't know if any of that got back to him. So they could have had some preparation in advance. I don't know the full story on that end. I just know what he admitted to me and what he admitted to the authorities or what lack of what he admitted to the authorities was very different. And the district attorney got down to the very nitty gritty details when it came to the evidence in the messages. I believe he was using language such as hooking up and not having sex. So that was like a very nitty gritty detail that they got down to, which was absurd. What they said to me the morning they told me that they weren't going to take him in for the voluntary surrender, that charges had been dropped. They told me that it would be a he said, she said case, essentially, and that they didn't want to put me through that. But why is a he said, she said case not warranted? Why is in this moment his he said more valuable than your she said? Why in this moment, in any circumstance, is that not warranted fighting for? Because you did say that it did happen and you have corroborated your evidence. The evidence should be on him to prove that he didn't do it. How do you know? Like you've used the word hooking up. Can we go and corroborate back with other people? Has he referred to having sex with somebody as hooking up in other ways? How do you prove that hooking up didn't mean that? Show me that evidence. Why is it on you? And this is just I, I so many people who have said this statement to me. He said, she said. I'm so fucking sick of hearing he said, she said, because that already creates an imbalance. An imbalance that means if it is just two people going up against each other, then the one that is victimized is inherently less valued than the person who has potentially offended against them. He said, she said, there's a power dynamic there that's not being used. Mm -hmm. Like what? Why is that an okay statement? And that just, sorry, I I know that I, I get very animated about this stuff though, because I've just doing this podcast, I just hear it so much and people are just being let down by systems that are built to fail them. And it just fucks me off so much. That's part of why I want to go into law and part of why I want to one day assume a district attorney position because of where I was failed. I don't want, I don't want to ever not take a sexual assault case. I want to be there for the victims, which is why I really want to study law when I go off to college. I've been taking a bit of a break from college to be in treatment, but that is like my biggest goal in this lifetime. And I think you've already shown how much your dedication and how and where your dedication can lead you to one of them being the biggest hurdles in your life sobriety. And that's pretty fucking amazing. So I don't have any doubts that you're going to take over the fucking DA role (laughs) I hope that when you are DA one day in 25 years, you give me a call back and we have a, (laughs) we have a yarn. (laughs) You can interview me. (laughs) In the meantime, I created an Instagram account called the Survivor Diary, which is an Instagram account dedicated to raising awareness on sexual assault and domestic violence. So that's just something I do in the meantime to help educate others about the cause, provide information on abuse, provide information on consent, show support to the survivors. Back when I thought of what I would say to my abuser, if I ever confronted him, um, I wrote out like a whole thing. But back in 2021, I got a tattoo of broken handcuffs. And it's just a little reminder I had broken the chains and got out of that relationship safely. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, yeah. In December, I wrote him a letter that I would later call my impact statement. So I outlined everything he did to me in this letter, and it goes as follows. The funny thing I've come to realize is none of us won in this situation. Holding you accountable for your actions that night have cost me my humanity. I wish I could say I'm doing better than I was when you were in my life, but the process of trying to make you understand your the impact of your actions was so dehumanizing. It was far from a victory seeing the ways in which you've paid the price. I'd first like you to understand exactly what you did that night. I don't think you've understand the pain you've caused. I don't believe you understand exactly what you've done. I trusted you. I trusted you deeply. Talking to you every night before we first met up felt like a breath of fresh air. It felt like I finally had found someone who understood me, which is why when we met up for the first time, I could not possibly imagine you would hurt me. I think to myself, maybe you don't even know how you have hurt me. Maybe you don't understand how your actions are wrong. I can tell you what I remember. It took a while for me to piece together what had happened, but the memories came to me all as overwhelming flashbacks that came from a place in my subconscious. I remember you pulling out that little gold condom wrapper and entering a state of complete and utter confusion. I remember you throwing yourself on top of me and me asking you to stop. Well, you kept going. I remember being too drunk and too young to consent. I remember waking up with bruises all around my neck and having no clue how they got there. It might not have been a moment in time of such importance to you that maybe you forgot, but to me, it is a moment that will stick around with me for the rest of my life. I was in denial at first. I pushed everything to the back of my mind. I did not want to believe someone who I thought understood me and cared about me would have ever put me in a position where I had no control over my body. So I continued to see you. I remember for the first couple weeks of seeing you, I was scared. I didn't know why at first, but I was. My body knew something was wrong. I never said anything. I eventually let it develop into a sexual relationship because I didn't know what else to do. I felt like I had no choice. I did not see a way out. 
I could not speak up for myself as I was just a kid. I was far too young and far too powerless to say no. You knew better. You knew what the age of consent was. The lies, the manipulation, and the intensity of the situation had my sense of reality completely warped. The only way I knew how to cope at the time was to pick up a plastic bottle of vodka and drink away what I tried so hard to forget. But even that did not make me forget. In time, the flashbacks and the memories got stronger. So I went to the police. I felt like I had to. It was the only way I could attempt to make you truly grasp the severity of your actions. But you got lucky. My evidence, our text messages, and everything else were not enough. You got off scot-free. I bet that was a day of relief for you to hear the news, but for me, it was one of the most painful days of my life. I wanted nothing more than to see justice served. I felt like my whole world had collapsed. Walking into that police station for hours of interviews was one of the hardest experiences of my life, an experience you will never have to encounter as you had lawyers to protect you. All I had were my own words. I've come to realize there's nothing more I can do. You either have to see it on your own and commit to a life of educating yourself on consent and how to treat women or continue living your life in an ignorant bliss. I know we both will never forget each other. You will never forget me as the girl you believe tried to ruin your life. And I will never forget you as the man who shattered my entire sense of safety at his hands. I have and will dedicate the rest of my life to helping other survivors heal from similar situations. Instead of going after you, I will take that energy and use it toward a greater good. I will help those who feel like they are stuck in a world of pain and denial. I've started a group and raised money for organizations protecting protecting survivors' rights and doing everything I can to help promote learning and education to the world as a whole about consent and sexual assault and domestic violence. All I've ever wanted was an apology from you, a simple owning up to your actions, not only for my peace of mind, but for yours. But I have come to accept I will never receive that apology. You will keep running. You will try your hardest to wipe the slate clean and start over. But in the back of your mind, you will never forget this, just as I never will. Justice may never come, but healing will. And with that, I hope you will see, maybe just a little bit, how these actions you have taken many years ago have shaped my life as well as yours. I hope for a better future for both of us, though I can never forgive you. One where you will learn and one where I will heal. Wow. That that was so incredibly well written and spoken. I have full body chills and tears in my eyes. That was that was honestly brilliant. And I think you've really encapsulated it so well. How did it feel writing that and reading that now? I cried the first time I wrote it, the first time I read it. I cried a lot of times reading it, but I feel like I've read it to myself so many times and I've read it to my therapists at my different treatment programs. And I feel like I kind of fully wholeheartedly believe those words that I was saying in that where at first I was unsure. Yeah. And I think that's something that so many people listening are going to relate to, like fully believing it versus just writing it down. Like we, we we get these things that are told to us from therapists and we get these things that are, you know, we try and maybe do affirmations or we might do different types of therapy. But until you have these aha moments that you actually believe what you've written down, that's the empowering moment. That's the real, you know, moment in time. And I think that's just incredible. Uh, and I have posted on the Reclaim Me Instagram page before um, other people's victim impact statements as well. So if any of you are listening here, whether it be a victim impact statement that was formally written as a submission to a court case or something like Isabel's just done with with writing one a letter to the offender or, you know, a victim impact statement type thing, um, I will always showcase them in any way as well because I just 
I think it's so impactful and I think that those words are going to hit so hard for some people. So thank you for sharing that. I was just going to say um, you did mention that like in that and before that you went into the treatment programs. Do you want to talk about that? Is that where you were going? Yeah, I was just about to go there. Good. Okay, go. (laughs) So I went to my first residential treatment center to heal from my trauma and substance abuse in November of 2021. It was a three-month program in Utah, and I graduated from this program and went to what's called a transitional living facility in San Diego in February of 2021. Um, This program was particularly hard for me because I feel like I wasn't very comfortable in my sobriety nor my trauma to really kind of move forward with my life, and this was also the time Around the time I was just starting to open up the police investigation, I was making calls from San Diego to my hometown in New York where the incident happened, um, trying to just kind of get everything in line, trying to arrange a time for me to come back to New York and come into the station. And everything was so overwhelming. So at this program, I relapsed. I got sent to detox. And after detox, I left against medical advice, which is... Basically, as it sounds, you leave the program against the medical advice, and I went back home to New York. I was home for about five months where my maladaptive behaviors continued. I still continued to drink every night. Um, Even though the police officer, when I talked to him, he told me the best revenge is success, which I think I really like that. But I didn't really grasp that at the time. And I still was like, just a mess. I was drinking every night. I was going out to bars alone in sketchy areas of town, very close to where he lived. So I easily could have run into him. Thankfully I didn't. Um, but after this, my parents were like, you're going back to residential treatment. And I was devastated by this at first, but I think that was the best decision to send me back. And they sent me to a program in Florida In Florida, there was a lot of experiences with boys there. It was very overwhelming. The program was like big. It had like 65 people. There was a boy that I met there that I dated for around three or four months. Um, And I fell out with this boy towards the end of my journey in the residential treatment center. Um, So I got involved with this other boy. And... I started having a consensual sexual relationship with him that lasted for around a week before I took a step back and I said, I don't feel comfortable continuing with this relationship with this other guy because I still have feelings for guy number one. Yeah. And I expressed this to the guy that I was seeing for that week and I expected him to respect me. And I expected him to be like, I understand. But his first reaction when I told him this was kind of like, what the fuck? Like, why are you doing this? You're making a wrong choice, which was definitely a red flag. But I, you know, I thought he was just hurt. I thought that's a normal reaction. I, I can understand that, especially I don't know if he liked me or if he just liked having sex with me. We'll never know, but um, I expected him to respect me was the bottom line. And I made this very, very clear to the authorities, to the people at this treatment program, to him that I was no longer interested in 
any sort of sexual or romantic or any contact. Instead, we were walking in a hallway together. He had opened the door for me and walked in behind me. And he came up to me from behind and grabbed my butt minutes after we had this conversation about no more. I asked him multiple times to stop. He didn't. Just grabbed it harder. And when he finally let go of me, he stared me dead in the eye and told me to fuck off. So I filed a police report the next day. And I honestly felt like talking to the police that time, they weren't as understanding. They kind of like asked me questions that I felt were very victim blaming that were like, well, you had a relationship with him before. So people are going to like be confused if you like retracted that statement. I was like, well, just because I had a relationship with him before does not equal consent in that moment. Even if you were in a relationship now, it doesn't equal consent in that moment. But after the um, police interviewed me, I guess they talked to him. I don't know what he said, but I just saw him walking out in handcuffs. So he was arrested that night. And I it's interesting because in the state of Florida, they classified it as battery and not sexual assault, which was weird. I still don't fully understand that. I can understand that. I think a lot of so sexual assault in Victoria, my state of Australia, is rape. So sexual assault is defined as um uh it would be like penetration to a sexual area, including the oral cavity with a body part or something manipulated by the body part. So if you were to use something to sexually assault somebody. In New South Wales, rape is penile penetration. And sexual assault is a different encompassment of that. So terminology can be really important in these types of crimes because if sexual assault is encompassing of of digital or PNR penetration, then a grope and and I'm, that's not discounting that is not a sexual act, but it is an act of assault to your person with intent to cause harm. That's the battery. So. When you're hurting somebody and you know that you're hurting somebody, that's assault and physical assault. And the battery charge, I believe, in the states, in most states, is the intent. So, you know, if you've got an aggravated burglary rather than a burglary, the background of that is the intent. So I can understand that depending on what the other laws surrounding it are, but I think that it kind of sets the tone as well because, yeah, it just depends on what you've what the law in that state has classified those other things as, even if it was a sexual con, it it was intended to be sexual harassment. It was intended in a sexual way. Maybe the way that they could classify it under the law was in that way, which doesn't mean that it's the best thing though. Yeah. But that definitely makes more sense. When I filed this police report, I, ended up relapsing again after he was bonded out from jail. When he came back to the program, I saw him when he got back and people at this program had known what he did to me and started hugging him. And they're like, oh my gosh, like you had to spend a night in jail. Like poor you start hugging him. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you know what he did to me, you know, like what? So 
I felt so alone. I felt so isolated. I felt so victim shamed. I felt like no one heard me and I was just screaming for help. So I relapsed after this, um, after months of sobriety. Well, there was like a little blip in between because I did relapse a little before that, but I was a little bit sober at the time. So after this, I was discharged from the program because they were like, you were relapsing. You can't be in this program anymore. You had relapsed twice in the program. This isn't working for you. And I doesn't sit right with me. The fact that he gets to stay in the program after having a battery charge against someone in the program and me having a natural traumatic response to it and getting asked to leave. And it's a program for sobriety. I think in the nature of it, you're going to have people who relapse. Mm -hmm. And something that should be addressed further is the fact that your first delve into alcoholism was following a similar Mm -hmm. circumstance. And this should be about addressing that rather than addressing nothing and making you feel victim shamed. Because you can understand from this point of view, you've you've gone through enough already with your addiction. You've gone through enough with the sexual assault that didn't get taken care of properly properly because apparently there wasn't enough evidence in inverted commas. And then you've got, you know, going here, having that scenario happen, having him taken away and then having people in front of you behaving that way. Like that, I can understand how isolating that would feel on a level of not being in a treatment program for alcoholism. You already are isolated from your family. You already are isolated from your loved ones that I can't imagine how alone you felt. And I can really fucking empathize with the want to go and have a couple of drinks. Like that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then what? So they've just, a, so you don't, they're supposed to help you there. That's like, okay, this is what, when you said that, this is the first thing that popped into my head. It's like telling somebody with cancer, oh, hey, you've got cancer. Uh, we've tried chemo for two rounds. Uh, usually we do like six months worth of it, but it doesn't seem to be helping right now. So like, just go away. Pretty much. It's like, no, it's not adding in radiotherapy. It's not making sure that you've got the right dosage. It's not keeping you in for the period of time that you need to. It's just abandoning it because it's not working right away. What a joke. It was ridiculous. So this program discharged me and sent me back to Utah where my first treatment center was different program, but kind of like within the same area. So I was in another residential for five weeks and I did not have access to my cell phone. When I left the center for one weekend to go back home for my aunt's funeral, um, I received a voice message that had I had gotten around end of January from the Florida state attorney asking me if I'd like to prosecute the case. And I reached back out to them saying I was unsure. I'd like more information. But by the time they got back to me, they told me they had closed the case due to lack of correspondence with me, which only the lack of correspondence only occurred because I physically was not allowed access to my cell phone. That's a process. So you're telling me that there's a box that's not ticked on a system that says, case inactive, we're not prosecuting it. And they can't untick that box because you've got a very reasonable and justified reason for not corresponding. Five weeks is also fucking nothing. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have prosecuted this case and received justice, but by sharing my story, I feel like in both instances, I, it's just more freeing. Definitely feels 
while justice can't be received in legal terms, metaphorical justice can be received, I feel like. So there's nothing I could do. In both cases, I was not able to receive real justice, but I feel by sharing my story, I can feel more free from the change that kind of bound me to these incidents. It makes me so angry that it was five weeks. I went five weeks and they couldn't hold on. They couldn't wait for me to respond. They said that they had a lack of correspondence with me. I explained the situation and they still couldn't do anything. And when I called back asking them, please do something, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. That's bullshit. It is a process. People say shit like that all the time. It's like, I'm sorry, there's nothing that we can do because we've already ticked a certain box. Well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to come up with a, another process. I am a process expert. I work in the government in some instances with processes. That's not the case. You're not telling me that there's a fucking constitutional area. And even if there was, you've made a mistake. It's a processing issue on your end because you can justify why you weren't able to do that. And I will be hard-pressed to see if it wasn't just literally a file's been moved into another location or been ticked as inactive, and all they would have to do would be to have a meeting with a bunch of people that are quite high up to move it back into the other circumstance because they've laid out a very reasonable case. She wasn't able to. She was in resi. She had no access to her phone. She wants to do this. Also, do they only have one contact for you? Like, aren't they cops? Like, or don't can't they call the cops and say, we've had no correspondence with her. Is there another known number? She was at this um, actual residential house uh, for the treatment of alcoholism when this event occurred. Why don't we call there? Then if they called there to try and contact you because you hadn't been contactable, then they would have found out where you were at and they would have been able to get in contact with you there via the facility rather than your mobile. So it's also just a lack of due diligence or care. Yeah. And I found it very weird. They got my cell phone number. I don't know how they got that. I mean, I'm sure it's like the government, the law. They can easily find that stuff. But they got my cell phone number and called me on there, but I never received an email of any sort. And I was able to check my emails while I was at this residential program. So if I had just gotten an email saying like, hey, which I mean, I don't know if like legally there's stuff surrounding like emails that they don't want to like disclose that information. I'm not sure. Um, But I, to my knowledge, my parents weren't called. To my knowledge, my new program wasn't called. Well, actually... Yeah, I know my new program was it called. The only thing that I believe I got was one voicemail from, I don't know if they called multiple times and only left one voicemail or if they just called one. Like, I don't know the specifics because I wasn't there, but I explained the situation and it just still wasn't enough. And the five week difference makes me mad. I mean, in my first case that I was describing with when I was younger, um, I get it. Well, I don't get it. I waited two years, but I still had circumstantial evidence. I still had evidence that could have led to a case, even tangible, though it was two tangible years. evidence. Yeah. Tangible evidence. Two years later, still should have been enough, wasn't enough, but five weeks, that is insanity. It's just, it's a joke. They've not given you a time frame to get back to them by either, because you could just be going through a bit of trauma and go, okay, they, they should leave you another voicemail and go, hey, It's just us. Look, we've got a process in place that we're going to leave at five weeks. Um, And if you don't get back to us in five weeks, what we're going to do is put it inactive and there's no way to get back from that. So we need you to call us back. Please get in touch. 
Okay, but this is a serious, serious allegation. Groping and hurting somebody like that without their consent is not an okay thing to do. It's a battery charge. It's not okay to do. So I'm not willing to accept that, you know, that they weren't, they were going to call you and potentially press charges. Okay. And I think you not getting back to them from one message. I have ADHD. Do you know how many fucking text messages I have in my phone that I have not read? Like 64. And I fully expect that if somebody really needs me, that they're going to call me or email me. If it's the government, I'm going to receive an email. I think that's a fair assumption to make. And it's an absolute absurdity that something so serious for both of you, for somebody who has done this to not be prosecuted for it or to not be held to account, and then for yourself to be let down like this, that's a very, very flippant way to deal with something that is so serious. It's ridiculous. It still makes my blood boil. I'm trying to like heal and move past the incident, but it was still so recent. This happened to me in December. It's April. So it's still very recent in my mind and I'm still just trying to process through it. And the fact that he's living this life at my old treatment center that I should have gotten to live. I should have been the one to stay. He should have been the one to go. It's just infuriating. Yeah. And, you know, where's the value in people's safety at that facility? If that's something that they condone and allow, that should be an immediate dismissal from any facility. If you show harmful behavior or violent behavior, you're out. Same with any workplace. The facility actually explained to me when I went in questioning, why isn't he left? Like, why isn't he leaving? They said to me, well, he deserves treatment too. Like, well, if he's a harm to women in here, there are treatment centers that exist in this world for abusive men. There are. I know of them. Why can't he go there? Why do I have to be the one recommended out of the program? It's but just why weird. aren't you deserving of the treatment as well then? Because that's completely like, that's just such a dichotomous statement to make, like on like flipping a coin. What Like, uh, yeah, but he deserves treatment too. Yeah, but you're kicking me out. So you're saying that I don't deserve treatment. You see me as problematic because I'm a woman who raised being groped by men. Like you're like, what's the patriarchy in that as well? That statement. Like we value his sobriety over yours. We value his treatment over yours. And we're going to keep the person who's literally been let out in handcuffs. And I, I will say, but this is my opinion. I don't believe in forgiveness like that. I don't believe in forgiveness because I am so sick of giving offenders reprieve. I don't, they don't need my forgiveness and I don't want to give it. For other people who listen to this, I know especially spiritual people or religious people really find salvation in that forgiveness and and really find healing in that forgiveness. I don't. I, that doesn't mean that I haven't accepted it. I've moved to a place of acceptance and I'm happy in my place of acceptance. And what I find really useful is every time I do get angry about something and every time somebody like you is telling me their story, my blood boils and I get angry, but my reaction to that anger is what can I do now? That's what I think about when I'm editing the podcast at 1am and I'm exhausted. And when I'm thinking about different ways to push forwards and get strategies and email other people to try and, you know, get the word of the podcast out, for example, that's the stuff that makes me want to advocate more and more. 
it's the stuff that makes me want to do everything I possibly can to change the system. Like you were saying about wanting to become a law professional and one day um, district attorney. Like those are the things that can feed us as well. And I believe, you know, that anger doesn't have to be something that is bad always. That anger can be a massive driver within yourself as motivation for those days. And that's just my opinion. That's the way that I personally see it. And I just, I don't think that striving for healing in the sense of it won't affect you anymore is for a lot of people attainable. And I don't want to numb us to the fact that we should be outraged. You know, I don't want you to be outraged and drink, but I want you to be able to be outraged. And on the days when you're up at 1am studying constitutional law, (laughs) that gives you another kick where you're like, man, (laughs) this is why I'm doing this. You know, I just, I don't know. I I just had that thought when you kind of spoke a little bit then, and it just made me feel so, um, just gut-wrenching almost like love for you and what you've got going on right now because it is so hard and it is heartache to hear for anybody that somebody's not being bullied, that's been treated like that, that's going through treatment, that's doing everything that they can. Um, But, yeah, don't think that for a second being angry or having that blood boil is a bad thing because I don't think that it is. Yeah. I will never forgive either of them that did that to me. I will forever hate them. And I believe there's this common misconception, like you were saying, that healing and forgiveness go hand in hand because they don't. Yeah. 100% high five. Like there's absolutely no fucking way. And it doesn't mean that you're being petty either. I mean, people think that you just hold on to things and you become resentful. I don't feel resentful at all. I've accepted the things and it's taken me a long time. It's taken me 14 years. So you have plenty of time and I've lived a very full and happy life so far. I hope to continue to. Resentfulness also I don't think is the worst thing in the world to resent somebody for what they've done to you. It doesn't have to consume you though. And I don't feel resentful, but I do feel fucking pissed off still sometimes when I think about it. Oh yeah. I feel pissed off that I've been silenced. I feel pissed off that nobody knows my offender's name in many circumstances. I feel pissed off that potentially there are other children that were and are in danger because the laws have prevented me from naming him and nobody seems to fucking care sometimes. That pisses me off too. So I totally feel you on that statement and I feel like it's just I hate the airy fairy fucking healing woohoo where all like everything's happy. And once you work on yourself and you do daily affirmations, then you reach a point of euphoria and you just stay there and everything's wonderful. (laughs) The grass is green and it's wonderful. (laughs) Everyone's happy. Like it's just so stupid, unattainable fairy tale bullshit. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. My rant is. um, Oh, that was perfect. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) we're like giggling to each other so it's it's not um you know it's not a teary space right now but it is um it is one where we want to enact change and I think Isabel thank you so much for 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 coming on and sharing what you have um it isn't easy and you know I wish you all of the best in your recovery and where you go to from here but I guess with the with the page that you're running online Um, And with things that you've got going on, is there any way that we can get involved and show our support for you? 
Yeah, just give the page a follow. It's called The Survivor Diary. Um, it's been a, like a little project of mine. I've started it in September of this year, and it's a very small community at the moment, but it's been slowly growing. Um, and I want to just let every survivor listening know that you're not alone. I myself have felt so alone at times, but there's an army of us ready to heal and take on the world. And I want to thank you for having me on the podcast and allowing me to tell my story. It feels so freeing to let it all out and hopefully help at least one other survivor out there. I think you will help more than one. And I think the discussion around uh, sobriety and addiction is something that we only ever mention. We don't deep dive into. And, you know, I just want to reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is that if you are struggling or you don't identify as an alcoholic or a drug addict, but you're using a lot in high frequencies, in high volumes. You have to change your volumes because you're doing them so often. Uh, maybe there is an underlying pattern of behavior there that maybe you are escaping and maybe you are addicted and that's okay. We don't need to have shame around the addiction side of things, but we do need to break that down and talk about them more. And, you know, there's a large cohort of people with neurodiversities who will seek addictive behavior and addictive things. And there's also a large cohort of people who've been traumatized as fuck as adults and children who are seeking these ways through coping mechanisms. You don't have to be suicidal. You don't have to be depressed and you don't have to be sad all the time to be using these coping mechanisms and behaviors. Um, So I just recommend if you are listening to us talk about this and it's kind of gelling up against you, maybe thinking you do drink too much or that you are using drugs too much or, you know, every time you drink, you do cocaine. You know, if if these are things that are coming up for you as you're thinking through, it's an okay thing. I just recommend giving it a Goog. We're going to put some resources in the show notes of this episode. I'll get Isabel as well to provide me with some as well. Um, And I just encourage you to explore the thought. Don't push it into the recesses of your mind. Just give it a Goog. Chuck it in the search engine and see maybe ask some questions out there fill out a checklist and see how you're going. Um, and if you want to talk to to me about it, I'm not a professional in this circumstance, but if you want somebody to maybe have a yarn with and see whether there might be options, we can figure that out together. Well, Isabel, it's been a real pleasure um, having you come on and talk. So I just want to say thank you again and I wish you all the best and I can't wait to check in with you and maybe have you back on again in a few months' time and see how you're going. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.